Uh, well, today I want to talk about transformation, uh, and transformation is, is really fascinating sometimes, okay? We look at uh, caterpillars uh, as probably the greatest form of transformation, right? When, when a caterpillar comes out of an egg, uh, it is nothing more than a glorified worm. Would you guys agree with that? I mean, that's all it is. And, and kids, of course, they love it. They're, they're, they're uh, depending on the type of caterpillar, I guess, they're fuzzy and, and they love to collect them and play around with them. But uh, then they undergo this, this change, right? Uh, they turn into a pupa, uh, they, they get into a cocoon, uh, and then after that they come out as many times a beautiful butterflies. Uh, and it's, it's a transformation process. It, it takes them from uh, what they were, glorified worms, to something that is very beautiful. Uh, and it goes over and over. All right, well, God in the Bible is a God of transformation. All right, God uh, loves to take people where they were uh, and make them into something new. All right, when we look at the Bible, we can see this all over it, but we can look especially in Genesis uh, and see all kinds of different transformations. And, and probably the most obvious ones are when uh, God decides to change people's names. I, we see it uh, in the story of Abraham. Right? Abraham was not always called Abraham. He used to be called Abram. Uh, and then he encounters the living God. And God says, no longer is your name Abram, but now it shall be Abraham. Right? Jacob is another great example. Right? Jacob is a deceiver. That's what his name means. He's a trickster. Uh, and all his early life, that's what he did. He tricked uh, his, his brother. He tricked uh, his, his father-in-law. Uh, and then he wrestles with God one night, and God says, Your name is no longer Jacob. It is Israel. Right? He who wrestles with God. Which is a very appropriate name for the children of Jacob who will wrestle with God throughout the rest of their history. Uh, but with Jacob himself, he encounters the living God and he's transformed. All right? and, and, and you can see his lifestyle has been changed uh, when you look at the rest of his story uh, from that point forward. All right? And our God, he, that's what he does. When he, we encounter him, uh, he transforms us. Right, we, we see it not only in the Bible, but outside the Bible as well. Uh, there was a guy who lived in the uh, 4th century A.D., and his name was Augustine. And Augustine, he, uh, when you look at his early life, it was not necessarily the greatest. Right, his mom had went to church, but he didn't really care about that. Uh, and then later on, as he grew up, he, he got a mistress, uh, and he loved to do all kinds of things. Uh, that were very sinful. Uh, he had a baby outside of wedlock. He uh, lived with this lady for many, many years until he comes across a great preacher by the name of Ambrose. And while he's there, he starts to read the book of Romans. And we're told that he gets to a part in Romans where, where Paul is talking about transformation. And he says, I don't know what happened, but I just couldn't live the way I used to live. And Augustine ends up being one of the greatest theologians of the early church. Right, this transformation happens even today. Uh, well, today I want to uh, look at a transformation that takes place in a guy's life in the book of Acts. Uh, and that guy is named Saul. Uh, we're going to camp out mainly in Acts chapter 9 today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, but we're actually going to start in chapter 7 uh, very briefly. So... Uh, we're going to actually look at the very end of chapter 7 
uh, to kind of um, set the scene for us. Uh, if you remember last week, we talked a little bit about the uh, pressures that the early church faced. Uh, and the very last one we talked about was the fact that uh, they were actually killing Christians because of their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, and so uh, at the end of chapter 7, chapter 7 is where we get the big uh, scene with Stephen and he gets stoned. Uh, and at the end of chapter 7, we are introduced to Saul. And this is what it says uh, starting in verse 57, I believe. Uh, as they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices, uh, they all rushed at Stephen. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. Uh, and if you skip down to the very uh, first verse of chapter 8, it says, Saul approved of their killing him, and on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Verse 3, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. All right, something that we have to understand about the book of Acts is this. Uh, Luke, uh, he is very uh, unique in how he introduces people. Uh, if he's going to talk about someone later on about their story, he just doesn't jump right into it. He wants to first introduce them and then tell their story. All right, this happens with Stephen. Uh, if you were to read the story of Stephen, it isn't all in chapter 7. Uh, there's a brief moment in chapter 6 uh, where the church is having issues and uh, how they deal with their widows. Uh, and so they choose seven men to look after the widows of the church. And one of those men was named Stephen. Uh, and we're told Stephen was a godly man way back in that chapter. And then Luke talks about Stephen in greater detail. And that's how Luke typically does it. And so uh, with Saul, this is how he does it. This is his introduction. Hey, there was a guy by the name of Saul. All right? He was a young man. All right? That can mean anything between the ages of 24 and 40. All right? So relatively speaking, it's a young man for many of us. right? All right? And, and, and this, is, this is who he was. And, and we're told that he is the one that they were laying their coats at his feet as they were stoning Stephen. All right? This uh, was a, a, a uh, societal thing, a cultural thing. I, when you went to stone someone, uh, you laid your coat at one of the witnesses' feet. And essentially, when you did this, you were saying, the person that you're laying their f coats at uh, was saying, if there's any issue with what we are doing here today, let it be on me and not on all the people that are throwing the stones. All right? And so, uh, if there was going to be any criminal charges for what they were doing, stoning Stephen, uh, Saul was essentially saying, let the authorities charge me with the crime rather than all these people. Now, what they were doing was a crime. Right, we, we need to understand that. The Jewish people, uh, they had no authority to just execute people. Uh, the only time they could automatically execute someone was if they were a Gentile, a non-Jew, and they entered a certain part of the temple. So when they take Stephen outside of the city and kill him because of his faith, uh, it's, it's a crime. Right? The Romans never gave them this authority. And so Saul is saying, if the Romans are coming after them, let them come after me. And that is what that symbolizes. And we're told that he goes out uh, in chapter 8, and he begins to go from house to house, dragging off Christians. All right? and, and I kind of picture Saul being the, the religious leader's uh, SS, if you will. 
Right, he was knocking on everyone's door. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? And every time he found someone, he dragged them off. And what's always been my mental image of this is uh, not just grabbing someone by the arm and leading them away, but, but grabbing them by the head, right, by the hair, and dragging them as they're kicking. I don't know why that's my image. I don't necessarily know if that's what happened. Uh, it's just always been my mental image for this. And so he's taking these people, and he's dragging them, and he's taking them to jail. And that's all the introduction that we're given uh, by Luke. Right, that's not much to go off. I, we, we have a lot of questions we can be asking right here. Why is Saul doing this? Why does Saul feel like he needs to go after the Christians? What is the purpose of all that? And so to, to really understand that, to, to get a true background understanding of who Saul was, I think we need to look at what Saul says about himself. All right, Saul will, will say a couple of things later on in Acts. He'll write some things about his early life. And so let's just for a moment look at some of these. All right, in Acts chapter 22, it's going to be on the screen, so you don't have to flip if you don't want to. Right, Saul will say this to people that are in Jerusalem. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of the way, those are Christians, to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. All right, so this gives us a little bit more information about what's happening. Not only is he dragging these people off to jail, but he's leading them to their death. All right, so they were taking them to prison, and they were killing them. All right, that's more information than what Luke gives us back in chapter 8. All right, and so uh, we do learn a little bit about Saul here. We're told that he is a Jew. He's born in Tarsus of Cilicia. All right, this would have been in uh, the, the western part of what is modern-day Turkey. Uh, it was a coastal city, all right, but there was uh, this divide between uh, the Jews that lived in Judea, Palestine area, and the Jews that lived everywhere else. All right? they were, the Jews that lived everywhere else were called Hellenistic Jews, and they weren't always looked upon greatly by those who lived in Palestine. All right? Those were the true Jews, and those guys are Jews, yes, but, but, but they're kind of not full Jews, all right? but not to the extent that Samaritans, who are hated, are. All right, it's one of those type of things. All right, and, and, and Paul, uh, he makes sure that they understand, hey, yes, I was born here, but I grew up in this city. All right, he says, I, I, I was raised here in Jerusalem. All right, that's where he's talking about. And so he wants them to understand that I'm one of you guys. So Paul, he has been with the, the best Jews. All right, he talks about how he was trained by a guy by the name of Gamaliel. And this is very significant, and we can often miss it. All right, so in the Jewish religion, just like uh, in Christian religion today, there are many, there were different sects of Jews, okay, different denominations, if you will. All right, there were uh, the two main ones that we learn about in the New Testament are the Sadducees and the Pharisees. All right, those are the main uh, big groups there were, but there were an, another of other groups as well. Well, within uh, the Pharisees, Right, the Pharisees were the most numerous. They were in control of the synagogues, the places where you came and you learned and you went to church. Okay, And, and so they were the largest sect, but within them, they were divided themselves. Right? And so uh, they were divided mainly between two different schools of thought on how you interpreted the law. 
Right? And, and there was so much of a divide that it was said that uh, Elisha himself, if he came down, couldn't bring these two guys back together. Right? And so it was a very big divide. And the leader of one of these divides was a guy by the name of Gamaliel. Right? And Gamaliel, uh, he uh, will, would later on go down in history as one of the seven greatest teachers in the Jewish religion. So he was a really smart guy. He was a very influential guy. And when Saul says, I was trained under this guy, he's essentially saying, I went to Harvard. And the respect level would have gone up for everybody. Whoa. Only the best got to be trained by Gamaliel. And here's Saul saying, I am one of those guys. And so we we understand all the way back in Acts chapter 7, Saul is way up there. Right, he is a smart dude. People, are, people know who he is. They're laying their coats at his feet because he is a very influential guy already. And then in Philippians, Saul will say this about himself. He'll say, if someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, as every good Jew was. Uh, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, he could trace his lineage. All right? He knew where he came from. Uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews, which is essentially saying uh, he was the best Hebrew there was. If you looked at Saul, you didn't help but think that he was a Jewish guy. Right? There, was no death, there was no doubt in your mind that he was very Jewish. Right? And then he says, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, which makes sense, he was trained under Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee. Uh, as for zeal, he was persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. And it's here that we have to understand why they would even want to persecute the church. And it all comes down to their idea of Messiah. See, for the Jews, they were, they were waiting for this guy to come, this Messiah sent by God to establish his throne over Israel. They were wanting him to be their king, not in a spiritual sense, but in a physical sense. They were waiting for someone to come and to overthrow the Roman government. And many people in their history had come and said, I am the Messiah. And every time they did that and they failed, they were considered to be blasphemous people. And blasphemy in Israel was not an okay thing. It led to death and death for your followers. And so when Jesus comes and says, I am the Messiah, and he doesn't do what they're expecting their Messiah to do, their initial thought is, well, he's just like everyone else. And if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, even though he is not reigning on a physical throne, that means you are wrong. The problem is, is they were wrong about what the Messiah was supposed to do. And so Paul, when he is going out after the church, he's going after people that are saying Jesus is the Messiah when he is clearly not in his mind. And that's why he's persecuting the church. That's why he's dragging them off to jail. That's why he's trying to kill them. And so it was just a a misconception on their part. Well, in Acts chapter 9, we see Saul, and he has decided that he is going to go after Christians, okay? Uh, Verses 1 and 2, we read uh, that, Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if any were found there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might 
take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. You see, Saul, he had done his job very, very well, to the point that he could not find any more Christians in Jerusalem. And so what instantly came to his mind was, hey, I'm going to go to Damascus. Right, Damascus would have been the next major city for, uh, full of, of Jewish people. All right, and so uh, it would have been a hub for Christians. And maybe he even got word that there's Christians up there. And so he goes to the high priest, the, the leader of the, religious, uh, the religion of, of Israel, and he says, hey, let me go up there and bring Christians back. And the high priest says, yeah, do it. And he gives him letters and he heads off. All right, 135 miles on horseback would have taken about a week. All right, so he, he, he goes off. It's a long ways away. And as he's getting close, in verse 3 uh, through 9, we read that as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell on the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So, he let, so they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. All right, and so, so we see this big, big light come, and it's a simple question. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's reply is... Who are you? And I think this tells us a lot, not just about Saul, but about people. See, Saul, he's doing what he is doing. He's going from church, dragging people off simply because he doesn't know who Jesus is. Why do you persecute me? Well, who are you? And I think a lot of times when we look at the world in which we live and we see people living in sin, we see them doing the things that we know is wrong, and we look at them like, why are you doing that? I think the answer to that is this. Who are, who are you? I think when we ask them, why are you living in sin? What is sin? They don't know. The world does not know Jesus. And so they cannot be expected to live on this standard that they don't even know about. I think we have to understand that. I think people sin not because they're trying to rebel or because they want to do whatever they want to do. I think they sin because they just have no idea that what they're doing is wrong. That's tough. And Jesus here, he reveals himself to Saul, and it's a transformation that begins right there in his life. And it's a physical transformation. He's blind. All right? He's blind for three days. He fasts. He prays. They have to lead him into Damascus. The people that are with Saul, they, they don't know what to think of the whole thing. They heard the voice, but they didn't see anything. And here's Saul, I, I just kind of picture, falling off his horse, like, ah! You know, and, and, and Jesus is talking to him. And, and we're told uh, in the rest of this chapter that a guy by the name of Ananias comes, and he, he comes to Saul, and he says, Saul, I'm going to give you your sight back. And he gives him his sight back, and he talks about Jesus, and he baptizes Saul. And it's just this great scene, this guy who was coming to Damascus to destroy the church is now a believer in Jesus. 
And then we get this beautiful scene in verse 20. We're told that after he's been baptized, after he's spending several days in Damascus, and at once he begins to preach. He doesn't wait. He doesn't wait until he's been in church for five, six, seven years before he starts talking about Jesus. He doesn't wait until he knows everything that he's going to need to know to tell people about Jesus. At once he goes and he begins to tell people about Jesus in the synagogues, saying that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished. And they ask, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners uh, to the chief priests? And yet Saul grew more and more powerful, and he baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. How was Saul able to do this? I mean, we've been studying the Bible from Genesis all the way up to Acts. How was Saul able to point to Jesus? It's because the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. And Saul, he was brilliant. He studied under Gamaliel. He knew the passages about the Messiah. All he needed to know was that Jesus was the Messiah. And he was able to tell them over and over again, this is Jesus, the Son of God. And he was able to prove every step of the way. And he does this from the beginning. And the people, their response is shock. This is the guy that's destroying the church. Why is he talking about Jesus? And they decide that that they, they can't stop him, so they decide to try to kill him. And he has to escape. And then in verse 26, uh, we read this. We read that he goes down to Jerusalem and he tries to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. And here's the thing that we have to understand about transformation. It truly changes us to the point that people are going to be shocked. I mean, you're going to have friends and, and, and people that you've hung out with that were with you when you were doing things that you shouldn't have been doing. And they're going to see you talking about Jesus and like, yeah, right. I mean, that's going to be their response. And even the people in Jerusalem, they're not convinced. Right? They, they, they've lived through Saul dragging their family and friends out of their houses and die, killing them. And so when Saul says, hey guys, I'm a Christian, their response is, uh, no. But that cannot be our response. See, when people encounter the living God, they change. And sometimes the change is negative. Sometimes they go further away from Jesus. But many times when they actually encounter the living God, the change is for the better. And for Saul, he has a change, and his change ends up uh, affecting everything who he is. He himself has a name change from Saul to Paul. And throughout, throughout most of the New Testament, it's Paul that we'd hear about. But he started off as this killer of the church, dragging people off. He'll say he was the vilest of criminals. But now he is serving the living God. So transformation, it's, it's one of those things that doesn't just happen in the Bible, and it doesn't, doesn't just happen to those who were way, way back there in the early church. It's something that still happens today, and it's something that we have to be aware of. 
I mean, Paul, throughout the rest of his writings, will talk about this transformation process over and over and over again. And so for a moment, I just want to look at a passage in Ephesians to kind of help us get an understanding of what Paul is trying to tell us. He says, so I tell you this and insist on it that, uh, in, the, in the Lord that you must no longer live as Gentiles do. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. And so Paul, he starts off writing about this, this passage of, of who Gentiles are. Right? And what we mean by that is, this is how the world lives. And the insistence of Paul is that we, as Christians, no longer live like they do. And this is, this is what he's trying to connect. We once lived like Gentiles. We were ignorant of the ways of God because of the hardening of our hearts. We were like them, indulging in all kinds of, of sinful desires. But you are not to live like that anymore. I insist upon it by the name of God. Do not live like they do. Instead, he continues with this. He says, uh, I don't, verse 20, maybe. Uh, he says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life. This is how you used to live. To put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your minds. And to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And this is the transformation that still happens today. We once used to live in the darkened ways of our minds, living in sin, but now we are to put on a new self. Paul will say, do not conform to the patterns of this world. Do not live like the rest of the world lives, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here he's saying, do not live like the world, do not live like Gentiles, but live in the new self that is like God, in righteousness and in holiness. And the transformation that we have, it's an ongoing process. We need to be more and more like Jesus. We need to be more and more conformed into the image of the Son, not to the pattern of this world. We have been bought with the price as Christians, and we've been set free from sin, and we're not to use that freedom to continue to sin. That's all what Paul says over and over again. It's this idea of transforming our lives from the sins that we used to live in to this new life in Christ. And for some of you, maybe you've experienced this already, and you have put on the new self, and you have stopped your old ways of living, but maybe Maybe you still are living like Gentiles. I mean, examine yourselves for a moment. Do you still live like the rest of the world lives? Well, that's a question that each and every one of us must ask ourselves. When we compare ourselves to the rest of the world, do we look any different? Because if we don't, then we have not been transformed. We have not taken off our old self. We want Jesus, but we want to keep the way we're living. Well, that's not what we're supposed to do in transformation. That's not what God desires from us. He wants us to take off the old self and put on the new. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
And Paul says the old is gone and the new has come. So what are you living like? Are you living like the rest of the world, still darkened in their understanding and lost in their ways and and giving over to your evil desires? Or have you put on Christ and living fully transformed in Him? The transformation that we see in Saul in Acts chapter 9, it's a transformation that God is desiring for you this day. If you've never experienced it, it doesn't matter the sin. Christ died for your sin as much as anyone else. Saul, a murderer of the church, was transformed into a saint. And you can be transformed as well, no matter what sins you have. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for Jesus and His death on the cross and His desire to see our lives changed into something new. Lord, as we examine ourselves, I ask that we can be honest just between you and us of the sins that we continue to live in. I pray, God, that when we look at ourselves that we can see whether or not we're truly taking the the old self off and putting on this new self, clothing ourselves with Christ, putting on His righteousness and His holiness. And if that is not the case, Lord, I pray that we can repent, that we can be transformed with interaction with you, the living God. We're thankful for men like Saul in the Bible who, who, who lived evil lives, and yet you redeemed them. And we're grateful that redemption is for us as well. Amen.